Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Adam Lashinsky. I'm the executive editor of Fortune Magazine and your moderator for today. We'd like to thank the club's members and donors for making this and all other virtual programs possible. We are grateful for the continued support and hope others will follow their example and donate to the club during these uncertain times. Today, I am joined by Peter Strzok, a former FBI agent of 22 years and the author of the new book, Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. On August 10th, 2018, Peter was fired from fired following the release of personal text messages from 2016 between himself and then FBI lawyer Lisa Page that disparaged candidate Donald Trump. But his story is anything but simple. He led the FBI's investigation into both Hillary Clinton's private email server and Russia's interference in the 2016 election drawing the anger of President Trump's most vocal supporters in Washington, across the country, as well as the president himself. In his book, Peter draws on lessons from his extensive career in law enforcement, from his role in the Russian illegals case that inspired the TV show The Americans, to his service as lead FBI agent on the Mueller investigation, to make the case of foreign interference at the highest levels of our government. And he grapples with a question that he thinks should concern every U.S. citizen. When a president appears to favor personal and Russian interests over those of our nation, has he become a national security threat? We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour. So just a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please submit it in the chat box. I'll see that and I'll ask the question for you. So as we get going, uh, Pete, as you told me that most people other than your parents call you, it's a real pleasure to meet you. And let me say what has become a tradition for people who have not served their company, their country when they first meet someone who has. Uh, thank you to your thank you for your service. Not only did you serve the FBI, but you're also a, a veteran of the United States Army. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, thanks to the club for hosting this discussion. And Adam, it's great to be here with you. Great. I um I was as I was reading your book, which uh, I agree with something that Chuck Todd said on Meet the Press this weekend. It's very readable. Um, it's not exactly an, a happy read. It's a sad read, as a matter of fact. But it, but it goes down nicely. The writing is very clear. And as I was formulating my questions, I had already written a question that you answered at the very end of the book. And so I'll start right there. Which is why did you write this book? Uh, because what we're facing right now is too important to stay silent. Uh, you know, I spent 20, more than 20 years as a counterintelligence agent at the FBI watching and learning how foreign adversaries go about, uh, go about targeting the United States. And what I saw, what we saw in 2016, both from the Russian attacks as well as the response to those by the Trump campaign and then the administration, uh, is still going on. That, that threat has only grown. And I think, well, you know, there's been all kinds of outrageous uh, things thrown my way and thrown at all folks who have stood up to tell the truth. But what we're facing right now coming up in November is too important not to speak out and say something. I was I, I, I take your your reasoning at, at face value. But if it were me, I would say I also wrote the book to set the record straight so that the record clearly shows my perspective. You, that must have been a motivation as well for you. Sure, of course it is. That's a great point. I mean, uh, you know, I very much wanted to create something that was a historical record of what occurred. It was something that was based uh, on precise uh, dates and events. And particularly as we've gotten into an era of, you know, sort of a post-truth environment where, you know, partisans are slinging outrageous retellings of things that never happened. I wanted to have a kind of a reference work, a piece where people could go to see exactly what we did, precisely why we did it and what we were thinking, and to have that out there for for all to see and, and, you know, understand again, what we were doing, particularly in 2016 Ford, uh, but you know, what we're facing today as well. 
And uh, I, I enjoyed that aspect of your book. I also read Andrew McCabe's book, and and some of some of the parts I, of both your books that I enjoyed the most were when you discuss your craft of of being FBI agents, especially when you were younger. When the two of you were younger, you can see the sort of uh, emotional energy as opposed to the, the 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 weight of the topics later in later in your story. Um, I want to start with the key word in your, in your subtitle, because I, 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 I gathered from your book that it's an important semantic point for you, for people to understand what is meant by counterintelligence. So let me ask you to start at the highest level, explain what that means, and maybe start to answer why I'm belaboring that point as you did in the book. Yeah, of course. So a lot of people, when they think about the FBI, they think about crime fighters, you know, going back to the 40s and 50s, all the movies that are made about chasing gangsters and bank robbers. And it's very much centered around this idea of criminals who are violating the law that we go and investigate and we build a case with evidence that we take in the court and we put them away. Intelligence work is very, very different from that. And when I say even just the word intelligence work, people have some idea of spies. But what I mean when I say that is, foreign adversaries, the Russian intelligence services, certainly the Chinese, but any other nation on this earth are actively day in and day out conducting operations in the United States to clandestinely get to our secrets and to influence our behavior. So counterintelligence is the government's response to that. And the FBI has the lead role in the United States. So I spent a career with a ton of people in the FBI trying to understand what foreign adversaries are doing here, what the Soviet Union and then Russia is doing in the United States, what China is doing to both get into the workings of our government and influence the way we're behaving. And that has nothing to do with a criminal trial. It involves intelligence, which is classified. It involves a lot of uncertainty that you don't tend to see in the black and white of a prosecution, but it's a very different aspect of the FBI's work than the traditional sort of criminal things that people think of when they think of the FBI. But you, but a counterintelligence investigation can lead to criminal proceedings. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. And, you know, there, there is this prior to 9-11, there was a, what cloak really is called the wall where there were intelligence operations that the FBI did and there are criminal ones. And there was a big division to make sure that we weren't moving things that were classified or not admissible into the other side. But of course, in national security matters, there is very much a, a dual, the two sides of a coin. On the one hand, we're looking at intelligence and trying to understand what a foreign adversary is doing. But at the same time, that same activity might involve U.S. persons who are engaging in criminal activity. If Russia recruits a spy in the CIA or FBI, that spy more than likely is breaking the law. So while we're looking at it to understand the counterintelligence implications, at the same time, we're gonna be trying to build a criminal case, finding evidence that we can use, identifying the elements of the crime and building towards that prosecution. Those go hand in glove. You can't separate those two out from one another. So that's absolutely a great point. They are, they are both together in national security crimes. Can you have um, one without the other? In other words, can you have a counterintelligence investigation that uncovers wrongdoing, but that does not rise to the level of criminal behavior, but it was worth doing the investigation anyway, but th and then what is my, is my real question? Then what? Uh, of course you can. And that's, uh, that's uh, the prevalent in most cases. That is, in fact, what happens. We will see there's some things that are purely counterintelligence. If we're watching you know, a hypothetical of a Russian intelligence officer in the United States, we're just watching him to understand, to gather intelligence, to see what he's doing day in and day out, see the things he's interested in, how he works, who he's talking to. That's purely intelligence because he may be here under diplomatic immunity. We're never going to be able to prosecute him even if we wanted to. But at the same time, there are many interactions that we see where it's not clear whether or not it's criminal in nature. And even if we think it is, I mean, more often than not, you get to a point where you believe that, yeah, there's probably something untoward here going on, even something illegal going on. But we're just not going to be able to prove that out in a court of law. And I should add, that's I mean, that is happens a lot in counterintelligence. But it also happens in straight criminal work where, you know, as an investigator that somebody's broken the law. But at the same time, for whatever reason, you know, you're probably never going to get to the point of being able to prove it. And that's a that's a frustrating thing that agents come to, to, to live with as part of their job. But but my I, my my assumption, and this is all highly relevant to the to the thesis of your book, is that 
counterintelligence investigations that don't rise to the level of criminal misconduct that aren't litigated in court in any way can still be referred to other branches of the government for them to act on to do what it is that they do. In other words, to try to counteract that threat. That's absolutely right. So if you look at, you know, some, uh, you know, take for example, Chinese hacking activity, they were doing a variety of things where they're engaged in very intrusive sort of actions with um, U.S. cyber systems. And there was a concerted U.S. response that was broad in nature. I mean, you saw things and you see it today, even with, you know, Russian sanction activities, for example. If the Department of Treasury sanctions an entity, well, that's, you know, that isn't the FBI, that isn't the CIA, that isn't even the Department of Justice. So all of these different departments in the U.S. government have various tools that they can bring to bear on what a foreign nation is doing. And that also points out something that it's really important to have a whole of government approach. Any individual agency working on its own is never going to be as effective as something that's centrally managed out of the White House that's kind of coordinating a broad response to activity that we see day in and day out from foreign nations. Okay, great. So um, I, I want to come to the main the main point of your book, and I want to remind our, our viewers that uh, that you can ask questions of, of Peter Strzok also by popping them into the chat box, and I, and I'll and I'll read them. Um, the title of your book is Compromised. You believe that the current president of the United States was compromised as a candidate for the, for president, and then continued to be compromised by the Russians as president. Make make the case for that, if you would. Yeah, uh, I do believe that he is. And look, I, I recruited people to work for the United States for more than 20 years, and I defended against those within the U.S. who had been recruited themselves. How that works, what motivate, motivates a person takes a variety of forms. I think when you look at President Trump, what leaps to mind is his primary vulnerability are his financial entanglements. Things that, and, and I'm not talking about legitimate business interaction. I'm talking about allegations going back decades of dealing with potentially laundering money, uh, you know, allegedly working with Russian organized crime money, Russian uh, money connected to oligarchs, and indeed potentially money, Michael Cohen asserts something, you know, financial transactions that he assumed millions of dollars uh, in a real estate sale that was a payment for Putin. But it's important to remember that that sort of how you leverage somebody, how you impact their behavior takes a variety of forms. So certainly we've talked about the monetary examples of that, but there are things that go into that like ideology. And when you look at President Trump's affinity, you know, in the recent Bob Woodward recordings where he's talking about how his affinity towards totalitarians like Putin and, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un and the and Erdogan in Turkey and how he has naturally gets along with them. There's clearly an ideological affinity there that impacts his behavior. There are also coercive things, whether or not, you know, whether you believe, again, what Michael Cohen says about tapes in Las Vegas or what Moscow may have recorded earlier on. And then finally, ego things that that people play in day in, day out. And if you look at the, the call he had with uh, Ukrainian leader Zelensky, clearly there is a sort of playing to that ego that resonates. But all of these things together are, the, and particularly things that are hidden, and that's where the financial aspects are so important. Those are the types of leverage that can be brought to bear to influence his behavior, and I believe are being done today. And... And I think I grappled with this uh, reading reading your book, and let me and let me try to summarize the you know your point and and my reaction to it, which is that um, you've explained how he how you believe he is compromised, and you've also described that for anyone to see his behavior that would suggest the actions of someone who is compromised his saying nice things about Putin in public while disparaging his own intelligence services. And that list goes on and on, and you document it very well in the book. But in, the, in your book, at least, or in the, and in the public sphere by others, no one proves these points that he is, do, is in fact doing these things for a reason. And, and I find that sort of, I, I don't know how to put it, intellectually troubling. I don't know how to close that circle. Help, help, you know what I'm saying, so, so help me out there. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I understand that's unsatisfying from an outside uh, observer. You know, there are a couple of things that go into that. You know, certainly there's stuff that's classified that is inappropriate for me to talk about. Nevertheless, things have come out. You know, the Mueller report talks about, in the example I, I use is 
when Trump on the campaign trail in 2016 talks about to the assembled masses at a campaign stop that he has no financial involvement of any sort with Russia and expands on that quite a bit and you know makes it very unequivocal that there is no relationship. At the very same moment, Michael Cohen's in and working with Russians trying to set up a Trump Tower Moscow that they want to give the entire top floor to Putin. Well, the minute Trump says that, he's not telling the truth. And Vladimir Putin knows he's not telling the truth. And presumably, having that truth come out, Trump knows full well that that would damage him. And Vladimir Putin knows if he were to make some announcement that, oh, hey, in fact, I'm busy negotiating for a Trump Tower and what he just said was a lie, that would hurt Trump on the campaign trail. So there are things that are now in the public domain that are clear indicators on the one side that that potential is there. And then what you have to do is, you know, and I understand because there isn't some, there isn't an interview of Putin on the record saying, yes, in fact, I had this leverage and I told him he needed to do this or else I would make it public. But that's not the way this coercive leverage works. The best sort of relationship between somebody and the person they're trying to influence is they never have to tell them to do anything because that knowledge is implicitly known. And I think when you look and yeah, there's that gap, but then you also have to line up all these inexplicable things. And you talk about some of them, but the list is huge. And not only is it large, but they're things that absolutely have no positive benefit to U.S. national security. So things like the, the GRU Russian bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan. When you look at his refusal to make any statement about the attempted assassination of Navalny, a domestic political opponent of Putin. When you look at the silence of the Belarusian protesters who are yearning for democracy. When you look at questioning our commitment to NATO. When you look at moving troops out of Germany, the, the things he said about Montenegro and not being sure about because they're very aggressive people, whether they'd come to their defense. There's no good U.S. foreign policy reason to take those positions. But there's every advantage for the Russian and the Russian perspective and their geopolitical interests to do it. So there is this inferential leap. But the only explanation for some of those, you have to ask why. You also have to ask who's putting those ideas in his head. But that the, you, you, when, you, when you look at all this unexplainable behavior, when you look at all these vulnerabilities which clearly exist, there is no other conclusion that, that you can make. Well, I, I take your argument, but I'll, I'll give you one. This is a man who violates the, the norms of decency pretty much every day that he wakes up and gets dressed in the morning. And so some of the things you describe, describe violate the norms of decency, disparaging our allies, disparaging Americans, for God's sakes. I don't think you and I are about the same age. I don't think we've seen an American president do that ever. And so all I'm saying is in, in terms of playing devil's advocate he violates norms all the time. So what's so special about the norms that you're describing he's violating in comparison? The difference is the motivation behind it. Look, I mean, he can be doing any number of things, fighting release of financial records because he has personal criminal exposure. All these things are part of the internal dynamic of the U.S. body politic. What makes this difference different is that you have an an outside power, a hostile foreign nation that is bringing to bear their leverage into this decision-making process. So it's one thing if Trump wants to say something that's crude or he's fighting the exposure of some sort of criminal activity or he's doing anything that's kind of shattering this normative behavior that we've come to expect. But what's different, and certainly from a counterintelligence perspective, is the outsized power and leverage that a foreign power has into his behavior. And that's something we just haven't seen at any time in our modern presidential history. Okay, great. So let's do a thought experiment. Let's pretend we're not talking about the president of the United States. Let's pretend we're not talking about a narrative where your investigation and, uh, and the investigation of other people was interrupted, harassed, stopped, stymied in, in all sorts of ways that you describe in the book. But let's pretend we're talking instead about Citizen X what would have been the remedy had had everything you just described been carried out to its conclusion, but not involving the president of the United States? Well, I think there is no citizen X who could wield the power of the executive to stop something from happening. And I think another point I'd make is like, look, we struggled with this idea of, you know, who is the FBI to go investigating the president? I mean, you know, from, from a very high level perspective, from a constitutional perspective, the FBI is part of the executive branch. Can it investigate the chief of that branch? The president, as the elected head of our nation, sets foreign policy. He sets the agenda and the goals. And, you know, clearly it, it should be the case that no man, including the president, is immune 
from, you know, <laughs> sanction for breaking the law. And But how do you do that in a way that is, you know, consistent with our system of governance, where the American public has confidence and belief that what the FBI is doing was appropriately sanctioned and justified. And it wasn't just, you know, in the dark shadow of J. Edgar Hoover running out and doing things. So I think the average case of somebody who we might be looking at in the same set of circumstances wouldn't have this kind of very heavy, weighty overlay of, you know, sort of mandate of authority and appropriateness of authority that we found when we started looking at the president. But, but I, I just want to understand in terms of justice, if, if you had uncovered a citizen doing these things, would you have would you have made an attempt to prove that they were, in fact, doing the bidding of this foreign power and then prosecuted them? Uh, absolutely. We would have pursued an investigation to understand it. And if the facts merited prosecution, if we could demonstrate that a crime had been violated and could make that case, then we would have gone to DOJ. Of course, DOJ, not the FBI, makes the decision of whether or not to prosecute somebody. But in those same cases, with an average citizen, had we found indications that they had broken the law, that's absolutely something that we'd go to DOJ. And in fact, that I mean, that is what Director Mueller did. That is what the special counsel's office did. Setting aside Trump, if you look at Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, Mike Flynn, George Papadopoulos, you know, Roger Stone, the list goes on and on and on. That's what that was. And so the question, the difference then becomes you know, what makes the president different? And is that good, bad, right, wrong? That's, those are tough questions. I'm going to come to viewer questions in just a moment, but I, you, you raised something that for me a, a little bit ago, which is a burning question, which is, which is Trump's taxes. Um, people speculate that, that if, if we saw his taxes, it might reveal some of the allegedly illegal behavior that you talked about uh, that has been speculated on before and potentially things including the Russians. So why do the, the, the issue of his taxes either don't appear in your book or barely appear in your, appear in your book? Can you address that? Um, yes, two reasons. I mean, one, I don't want to get into specific details about what individual item of financial information we may or may not have gotten. I also don't know what occurred after I left the special counsel's office. But I think looking at all those financial uh, data that exists there, it is clear that he is fighting tooth and nail at every step of the way, asking for injunctive relief at the next higher level of whatever court the decision is at to prevent that material from being released. It's not complicated. <laughs> the answer is right there. He is not fighting this because he just has some deep-seated belief in financial privacy of everybody. He's fighting it because he perceives a threat in there. I think he perceives a criminal threat in there. Setting that aside, I believe that that information also hides a great deal of information about involvement of illicit Russian monies, whether through organized crime or directly tying into the government of Russia, that again, is the sort of thing that because he doesn't want it known, creates leverage and an ability to influence his actions. You said, I think, are you, are you speculating or are you commenting on, your, on the on knowledge that you have? Uh, both. So there are things again, and I don't want to get too cute because then if I'm confirming things, you know, I'm essentially saying them. So I don't want to sit here and give you any detail of saying, yes, I know this and not that. But again, I'd point to the public record. And again, recently, what Michael Cohen is saying about these real estate sales, you know, this one property in Florida, which was sold for a grossly exaggerated amount that Michael Cohen says he believed was a payment from Vladimir Putin to Donald Trump. Looking at that as a tangible example, when you scope back and look at the Trump financial empire with a heavy involvement in real estate dealings where you can play all kinds of games with valuation, if you look at licensing where you can play all kinds of games with valuation, these are traditional avenues that are very um, open to potential abuse by, for money laundering and other sorts of nefarious activity. So without saying, yes, I know that occurs or, you know, making any sort of allegation that I'm not prepared to either back up with fact that isn't known, um, you know, the best I can do is kind of point to that, those opportunities and potential things, and then point to the public record that more and more is coming out. And, and given that you now, unfortunately, are an expert on the subject of how information leaks in Washington, um, can you speculate on why we, why all these years now into it, five years essentially into this uh, era, we still haven't seen the president's taxes, tax returns? Uh, I can't, and that's a problem. I mean, the the issue again is setting aside 
criminal activity that may or may not be in there. Everybody focuses on the things that the president either lies about or doesn't disclose. And usually it's in the context of his ethical obligations that, you know, he should divest himself for certain things or it isn't appropriate to be, you know, profiting off of businesses at the same time he's leading the government. That isn't most people when they say that understand that. But I'd ask, look at that from a counterintelligence perspective. There is something there that he perceives as harmful. Now, put yourself in Russia's position. If I can use my intelligence service to intercept your phone calls, to intercept your emails, to sneak in and get those financial records, to recruit people around you or place people in your orbit, if I can use all those tools of intelligence and statecraft, I'm going to be able to get to that information in a way that the media can't, in a way that you know the New York Attorney General can't. And when I know that, Trump still doesn't want that information to come out. So again, that gives me leverage. And that is the kind of thing, every time you look at something and say, well, he lied, or he's trying to hide that or cover it up, think about that from an intelligence perspective and the counterintelligence vulnerability that represents. Hmm. All right, I'm gonna read a question uh, from, from our viewers. Uh, in your book, you report that the Russians, quote, pulled some of their punches, end quote, in 2016. That is, they didn't do everything they could have done to help Trump. What were those punches? So I went as far as the Bureau's pre-publication review would let me in describing that. And I'm glad that they were able to let me say what I did. Many of those things are you know, classified and appropriately so, because if we think they're going to come at us again, we need to be able to prepare our defenses against that and uh, blunt those attacks if and when they come. I would say that there has been some reporting. You know, Microsoft just put out a recent report about some of the activity they had seen from the Russians, as well as the Chinese and others. But they talk about some of the detail about how Russia has started, you know, changing the ways in which they're attacking data systems, going to brute force attacks rather than spear phishing. Now, clearly, that 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 is a type of activity that isn't designed to be hidden. They want, when you do that, it's going to be apparent that you're there. But they do talk to some things which point to deeper truths. You know, they talk about how actors are changing out IP addresses and the places they're coming from, you know, is 10, 20 times a day. So a greater effort to misattribute and hide where these are coming from. And I think there's also been public reporting about they, their advancement in being able to make it harder to attribute actions into the hands of the Russians. And so when you take that sort of behavior and you couple it with things that have come out about the various successful intrusions into state databases and voting systems, targeting of hardware, that's the sort of, um, sort of indicators on the periphery that point to you know, some of the deeper concerns. And certainly it was a vulnerability in 2016, remains a vulnerability today because frankly, we haven't had a whole of government approach to really vigorously combat this in a unified manner. And, and you mentioned something, and would you just speak briefly to, you, you, had a, you describe in the book your very bitter departure from, from the FBI, and you, you describe it in some detail. Uh, are you surprised that your book passed muster with the, the pre-publication review by the FBI? No, because I took a lot of pain. I mean, I, you know, I spent my career, a large chunk of it, you know, investigating uh, media leaks and people who, you know, inadvertently disclose classified information. So I knew where that line was. And I took a lot of effort to make sure what I was saying was backed up with what was already in the public domain. I was frustrated. I mean, look, they have by regulation 30 days, business days to do it. I submitted my book in December of last year, and it took about five or six months to get cleared out. So that was very frustrating. I wish I was talking to you in May and not in September, but uh, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, that I, I wasn't surprised that it cleared. In, in, interesting. Um, now I'm, I'm going to read another question and I'll ask you to define a term that's mentioned in the question. The SSCI report mentions that a former FBI director was working for a Russian company in 2016. What are your thoughts on former high level Intel officials working for foreign actors? And what is, um, S sure. what is so, the SSCI report? Yeah, the, so that's the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. There's an intelligence committee in the Senate and in the House. SSCI, which is commonly abbreviated into SISI, um, just sort of a pronunciation, 
released a thousand page report. And what's interesting was, you know, this was a committee led by Republicans and every one of those Republicans signed on to the conclusions of this thousand page report, which just presents a damning counterintelligence perspective. But there's absolutely from time immemorial that foreign intelligence services and foreign governments try and leverage, particularly former government officials, to work with them because they know that they have entree into still existing government, uh, people in government, they understand how government work, and they're going to try and use that to advance their own agendas. What I get really concerned about is, you know, take somebody like Rudy Giuliani. Well, they just, he's been running around in Ukraine in particular, trying to track down information about Joe Biden. As it turns out just last week, the treasury sanctioned somebody by the name of Durkach saying he was an active Russian agent. I mean, he's Ukrainian, but he was an active Russian agent for over 10 years, 10 years. And this is our, the Trump administration's Department of the Treasury saying that in writing in a public setting. And that's the same person that Rudy Giuliani is making TV shows and getting information from trying to build, you know, what I believe is a complete propaganda disinformation campaign to try and tar uh, Biden. And yet this America's mayor, you know, from from 9-11 standing there at ground zero as a symbol of strength, who's suddenly been turned into this tool of Russian disinformation in a way that I, I hope he doesn't understand. And if he does understand it, gosh, I hope he's backing away from these sort of connections. But that's always a concern. And that's always something that any foreign government, certainly hostile foreign governments, are going to try and exploit. But by the way, would you know, you discussed very briefly in the book your uh your political leanings or your your political background, including your family's political background, such as it is. And it's a it's it, once upon a time that would have been considered a sort of normal American experience. Just tell our viewers what 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 I'm talking about. Um, sure. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was born, you know, into a Republican family. My father grew up. He was born on a dairy farm in central Wisconsin joined the army to, you know, get out of the dairy farm in Wisconsin. My mother was born on a tobacco farm right in the North Carolina, South Carolina border. And again, went into teaching overseas at military schools to get away and get, you know, out and abroad. And, you know, they met and ended up traveling the world for their, for their lives. Uh, but that sort of, you know, what's interesting to me is that sort of, <laughs> The image of me that has been portrayed by a lot of the kind of partisan and, and hyperinflated Murdoch Empire and others is one of, you know, some, uh, you know, silver spoon fed, you know, grew up in the Hamptons bastion of liberalism. And the reality is it's something very opposite. You know, it was a, you know, conservative upbringing, a law and order upbringing. I went into the military, followed, followed my father, who is a career military army officer. And this idea of, you know, national security, of a strong national defense, of a, you know, the values and ideals of America were, you know, for most of my life, something that was very strongly associated with the Republican Party. And I'm not saying Democrats, you know, there weren't Democrats who did exactly the same thing. But when you think of that sort of belief, that's very much until very recently, it seems something that was was very much a, a Republican value. Yeah. I'm going to read another question, Pete. It's what is the FBI doing to confront the rising tide of white supremacist violence in America? Is this something that worries you as a former agent? Uh, it worries me a great deal. And I, when I started in the Bureau, I actually started as an analyst and I was working domestic terrorism. And even this was 1996 and we had come on, they had ramped up the Bureau's efforts after the Oklahoma City bombing with Tim McVeigh and others had you know, blown up the, the federal building, the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. There has always been this tension of the expression of the First Amendment protected speech with violent actors, particularly white supremacists, and how the balance of what the Bureau should do and how intrusive they should be in investigating as opposed to protecting all those you know, things enshrined in our First Amendment. I'm really concerned about the way that time after time, particularly when you look at these mass casualty shootings, the number and prevalence of people who have some link to white nationalism or white supremacist type ideologies. I know it concerns the FBI. I know they're looking at that. It concerns me as well that sometimes when I see the political levels of the Department of Justice advancing Antifa and other elements in ahead of some of these other demonstrable historical motivations, but I know that the FBI is taking a hard investigative look at trying to understand that and getting ahead of the threat. But it worries me a lot. Uh, 
A viewer asks uh, the following question, and I think in an admiral, admirably polite way, it's an important question and co- an important topic. Can you explain why your texts, meaning your text messages, should not have people questioning your partisanship? And the, the, this viewer is referring to your the, the, your fa- now famous texts that uh, basically said you, you you didn't think much of candidate Trump. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. And I understand why people would ask that question. And the fact of the matter is this, you know, first, FBI employees have opinions. Each and every one of us has a private political opinion. And we talk about that to people who are, you know, outside of a work environment. The second point is that all our structure is set up. And my what I experienced day in, day out was that when people show up at the door, they check those beliefs at the door. And so it's not only what you do, but keep in mind your part, you have coworkers, you have a hierarchy of people where this is all baked in. And even given all that, I can understand why looking at that, somebody might have concern. And the fact of the matter is that the inspector general did not one, but two investigations, but like more than 15 attorneys and investigators where they literally went through Every text I wrote, every email I wrote, every chat I wrote, interviewed scores of people, going back to my roommate at Quantico, for God's sakes, and at the end of all that, concluded that they had no evidence, either documentary or testimonial from any of this, that mine or anybody else's actions were based on an improper political basis. So I understand reading those, why somebody might be concerned, but then if you look at what was done to verify that, the exhaustive way they looked at it. And again, this is, that isn't even considering U.S. attorneys who looked at this, congressional committees who looked at this, media investigative reporters who dug into it. Consistently, the answer has been universally clear that what we did, our actions, my behavior, were done for the right reasons and weren't based on any sort of improper political basis. You know, you, um, if, if, if I could, if I could push you a little bit, you you've been accused of being biased against Donald Trump. The, the the and when you describe, when you answer that, you say your response is, "I have personal beliefs, of course, like everyone else. I check them at at the door." Um, as a journalist, and and I, I I I'll you may be amused to know I've given I've spoken to a sixth grade class about this. They said to me, "What's bias?" I said, "Everyone's biased." It's not if you're biased, it's what you do, it's how you act on the bias. And I only bring it up because I think for understandable reasons, you don't want to use that word. You don't want to say, yes, I'm biased. I I have personal beliefs, but I'm also a professional. Do, Do you want to react to that at all? No, I think that's a great point. And look, we fight, you know, the FBI was bringing in implicit bias training. Law enforcement is doing that, particularly in the in, in race relations. And, you know, that becomes a particularly important area to think about. Do we have cognitive bias? Do we have unacknowledged, you know, kind of implicit bias? And how do we make sure that we're acting in an objective way? So I take that point. Uh, you know, what's interesting, and one thing I would also respond to, you know, at the end of the day, you're right. It's absolutely how you act externally. Um, whatever is going on in your mind. And to that end, you know, another data point, one of those IG looks said that, you know, when it came to investigating Hillary Clinton in the email, her use of a private email server, the IG found, put this in writing, that I was one of the most aggressive on the team pushing to investigate that. So, you know, clearly that was not in Clinton's interest. Clearly that was advantageous to Trump. If you look at the actions that I and others in the FBI took in the fall of 2016, None of what we were doing with Trump was public. And had any of us, me, if I had wanted to influence it, had we gone to the press or to Congress and talked about our cases on Manafort and Flynn and Papadopoulos and Carter Page and all these other folks, that would have been really damaging. I mean, horribly damaging to then candidate Trump. And none of that came out. And contrast that with what came out with then candidate Clinton. And that was very public and that was very damaging. So to all these folks who say, well, you know, there's this plot against Trump or you were, you were trying to work against him, the reality, the historical record is that we did everything, truly everything we were doing in that time frame served to help Trump and to hurt Clinton. And it, that's a dispositive test. I mean, there, there is no other way to walk away from that set of facts and come away with any other conclusion. You know, your your training taught you that when when given a when faced with a tough assignment, you 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 not only accept it, but you you accept it enthusiastically. Enthusiastically, I mean, that's what a soldier does. It's what a a, a badass FBI agent does. 
Would you advise an agent uh, 10 years younger than yourself right now getting involved in an investigation that clearly is going to have political ramifications to uh, try to find something else to keep themselves busy instead? Nope. Dive in. Why not? Dive in. That's why we're there. I, you know, the, the big cases, big headaches, small cases, you know, small headaches, but it doesn't matter. That is the calling. In my opinion, you know, the more fraught with whatever the case may be, harm, political exposure, that is the kind of thing that should rise to the top of the list that should be the ultimate calling for any good agent or analyst or investigator to want to work on that, to want to understand it. And the greater the obstacles, the stronger the drive should be to, to drive, dive into that. You made an important point in your book that I've thought about a lot covering Silicon Valley. You, you said that, that digital media, social media has changed the game of, of, of counterintelligence and of, of, of spycraft, of tradecraft in, in, the, in the intelligence business. It, I take that point. I want to ask you a difficult question about that. Do you think that this horribly corrosive environment we have in our in our country today was it always there or is it exacerbated by by social media in your professional opinion both of those i think it was always there i think social media has created an environment where people can self-select the truth and things that they want to believe to reinforce that belief we're well past the stage where you know your options were you know Walter Cronkite or Peter Jennings, and you had two options to get you news. You can go out now in a social media environment and self-select all those things that reinforce the beliefs that you have and that you want to believe. And as a result, you know a you really believe it, and b that schism, that ability, that kind of enhancement of kind of this polarization of belief on social media is exactly the sort of environment that the Russians really understood, and they were they were onto this before anybody in the United States was, understanding the power of being able to use that to divide and enhance, pour gasoline on these divisions. And so the hardest thing, if you're somebody who has a strong set of beliefs that is looking at things that reinforce it, to then come in and say, well, you know, the Russians are behind this. Well, you know, that's offensive. No, I this is what I believe, whatever it is. And I don't care what the Russians are saying or aren't saying. But we really, you know, that has been a game changer, certainly in the social dynamic outside of anything the FBI does, but absolutely it's been a game changer within the counterintelligence and intelligence arena. Other than high level leadership, do you see any way to walk this back? In other words, to improve the, improve the climate to where Americans, I, I've just in the last few days, I've been exposed to what you, I understand what you uh, are exposed to on Twitter, just by my having posted that I'm going to be interviewing you, I find it profoundly saddening and it makes me not want to look at Twitter. Um, anyway, any, do you have any, any thoughts for hope on where we go from here? Yeah. I mean, I think Twitter is always going to be a little bit of a cesspool because I think anytime you can kind of have an unattributed conversation, it's going to uh, encourage our lesser angels. But what we need, I, I believe, I still believe in the, the fundamental nature of the American ideal. I believe in the goodness of the American people. I believe that we are stronger by what unites us than divides us. But I think that has to come from the top. We have not chosen a leader that is seeking to emphasize those qualities. We saw the leader from his inaugural address talked about division, talked about strife, talk about, talked about conflict, and that there was a fight and that one side was pitted against another. If we are going to overcome these, I mean, we have people protesting. We had protests in 2016, but now we have protests where people are picking up guns and engaging in lethal violence against each other. If we are to change, we must have leadership that is going to bring out the things that unite us rather than playing up those things that divide us. And it really matters. A president matters and makes a difference in that dialogue. And if we have any hope of kind of bridging these differences, we've got to have different leadership than what we have now to be able to do that. A viewer writes, uh, the, the Durham investigation, what do you see as the purpose of this investigation who is being investigated and do you see yourself as a target? And please tell everyone what, what the Durham investigation is. Um, sure. So the, as I understand it, the Durham investigation was uh, 
something, you know, broadly an investigation of the investigators. It was something that the attorney general uh, selected uh, John Durham, who's a U.S. attorney out of Connecticut, to take a look at the genesis and the origins of the uh, Crossfire Hurricane investigation, which was the initial case we had into the Russian offer of assistance to the Trump campaign. And I, I just um, want I, to interrupt. I just want to interrupt you to tell everybody listening that uh, that that you named that that investig you na- you gave that investigation its code name and that it came out of a Rolling Stone song, which was very amusing. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. It, it did out of a great, and it was more prescient than I, I could ever have imagined. But look, I, I don't. I am certain that having been there from the genesis of these investigations and knowing how they came to be and what we were doing, that it is exactly as the inspector general report describes. He took a look at that. And there is no, I am convinced, I think that political levels at the Department of Justice and at the White House want some nebulous, dark whispered investigation that they can point to about some ill-defined nefarious activity that took place to spy on the campaign of the president and to undermine the presidency, which is nonsense. And so I think my sense is they want that existing out there so they can use as a political foil as we approach the elections. You know, again, I am confident I did nothing wrong, let alone anything illegal, nor am I aware of anything done by the people around me, either above me, next to me or below me, that represents improper and certainly not illegal activity. So I haven't been interviewed. I don't know what their scope is, but I just there are things that have occurred and particularly You know, the fact that uh, John Durham's primary deputy, a career prosecutor, quit the team last week gives me a lot of concern and a lot of pause because it joins this list of people, you know, four or three or four prosecutors in the Roger Stone prosecution, the lead prosecutor on General Flynn's prosecution, all who have quit the work they're doing at the Department of Justice because their integrity, their code of conduct internally did not allow them to continue this work. That's unprecedented, and it's really worrisome. And for somebody who's inside the government, to see that it's unprecedented is hard for me to convey the severity and alarm that I feel when I see that sort of mass resignation of good people of conscience simply walking away and saying, I can't be part of this anymore. What is your take on the status of the FBI and the rest of the intelligence community? And I'm, I'm asking you, what is the morale of the people and what's the prognosis, if you will? There's no question this is a challenging time. I mean, I, am, I, I have said before, and I will say again, that the women and men of the FBI that I worked with, that I know now, they are fiercely independent, they are fearless, and they're going to do their job and uphold the oath they took to the Constitution. Having said that, there's no way that any FBI investigator can hear the statements coming out of the Attorney General and not have that have a chilling impact on the work that they're doing day in and day out. And it's not just the Department of Justice. If you look at things that people in the Department of State, people within the Department of Defense, whether it's Colonel Vindman or the various career diplomats that have been just pilloried within the Department of State for simply standing up and telling the truth, all of this has a deeply chilling effect of the professional government worker that Again, I think a lot of this is holding, but I'm deeply worried that another four years of a Trump presidency is really going to destroy in a very lasting way a lot of what we have built up over decades and decades and decades of creating an independent professional government civil service. Pete, let me let me play devil's devil's advocate with you on that. There's a, as you know, a large percentage of the electorate supports the president passionately, and so they hear you say that, and and they're going to say, you know what? I'm glad these smarty pants are getting their comeuppance. They're the ones who are responsible for all the bad things that have happened in this country for all these decades that you that you so that you so glorify. React to that if you would. I, I think that's a, a a response that is getting fed by certain partisan elements in the media and in politics. Look, every single person, wherever they are in the United States, they get their mail delivered by a US Postal Service employee. If they go to their local national park that is being worked and cleaned and maintained by a U.S. Park Service employee, if they go to their local military base, there are career, both DOD uh, uniformed soldiers, as well as civilians who are there making sure that the national defense is maintained. Day in and day out, this kind of notion of some faceless, evil, deep state bureaucracy that exists in D.C., that's not the federal government. The federal government exists throughout our nation and does all these core services. When you show up at the VA hospital to get treatment, that's being done by a government servant. So all these people are sitting here 
to serve the American public. And not only that, they're being, they're doing that in a way that's selfless and professional. And all of these folks, every government employee that I came across was really dedicated. I mean, it sounds corny, but the service to the nation was a, a strong motivating, a noble motivator. And I, I'm disappointed that people would so readily buy into some of this really opportunistic, you know, kind of partisan spin on what government is, because it's simply not true. Thanks for that. Uh, here's another question from a viewer. What what can we as normal citizens do in the next few weeks to help ensure a free and fair election? Uh, vote. I mean, I think some of it is ask, educate yourself about what's going on. But the biggest thing you can do, and don't talk to your friends that are going to vote like you because you've tuned in and you care enough to, you're, you're already registered, you're listening to me to talk right now. Go and find ways to get people who would not ordinarily vote to get them registered, make sure they're registered well, and that, and I don't care. Vote for a Republican, vote for a Democrat. I don't care who you're doing, but get out there and exercise that right to select our government. Look at how you can help in polling places. Traditionally, our poll workers tend to be seniors. They tend to be at higher risk of exposure to COVID and other you know, illnesses, particularly going into this November. There is a need for poll workers. Get engaged in your community. And again, I don't care where you fall. Get out there and make sure because it is not with, I've never said this before, and many people say, oh, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I've never said this in my 50 years. This election is more important than any that I can think of in my life and that the projected issues and, and ramification of that. So just get involved with your community, get outside the circle of people that you ordinarily interact with and get folks to the polls. A viewer asks a question that takes us back into the story of something, an important thing you talked about in the book that we haven't discussed yet. Would you comment on Comey's announcement? This was the then FBI director, James Comey's announcement about Hillary Clinton's email investigation 11 days before the election back in 2016. Now, this person's asking about the, the one right before the election. You also wrote at length about the previous announcement he made. Why don't you talk about both quickly? Yeah. So, I mean, that the, the one right before the election at the, you know, immediately at the end of October was one that was profoundly debated. I mean, those were very gut wrenching um, debates that we had advising, you know, and turning around whether or not to do it and advising Director Comey. I think it's important that you frame that and in, in, in the decision to do that, you have to look at that in the context of his July 5th speech. And so and the reason I say that is I think that that July 5th speech puts us on a path where there was no other alternative come the end of October for Director Comey to make that speech because he had already gone out to the American public, announced what he had found. He had told Congress that we'd closed the case. And when you do that, you create a path, you narrow your path to something where if something comes up and none of us foresaw Anthony Weiner's laptop walking in the door, but you put yourself on the path when that comes up that, you know, using Director Comey's, um, you know, he, he's spoken about this at length, you know, whether to, to conceal or whether to tell the truth. And one was bad and one was worse. And that's true, I think. I agree with that decision that having done what had occurred in July, that we were, that he had made that decision. And I initially, in October, fought against it. I disagreed. I didn't think he should make the announcement. And then the group of us debating it, ultimately Comey's arguments, I was persuaded that he needed to do it. But the, the, the original sin, if you will, was that July 5th speech. And at the time, we certainly debated it. We went through that speech up, down, left and right. Every comma, every word was scrubbed. But I don't think any of us looked at that from the perspective necessarily of all the ways that that might change the decision-making environment later in the fall. And I certainly think, you know, in retrospect, and it's unfair because, you know, hindsight being 2020 is... It's, it's, it's unfair to make any judgment, but I do wish, knowing what I know now, going back into that May time frame, that I would have you know, advocated differently, perhaps not to have made that speech. Um, question from a viewer. As a counterpoint to white supremacist violence, I am curious about your attitude toward the Antifa movement. Scapegoat, myth, real concern, question marks following all those words. Uh, I don't know. And the problem is, I don't know because I believe that there are partisan influences involved in shaping what is being said about what is occurring and not occurring. Look, violence of any kind, of any motivation is wrong. It needs to be stopped. It can't be tolerated. And to the extent it's illegal, it needs to be prosecuted. At the same time, 
we absolutely should be allowing and permitting lawful protests. To have what you saw in Lafayette Square, where the president, you know, before he even comes out, Attorney General Barr there using force, chemical agents, tear gas, riot control geared soldier, or, or, you know, National Guardsmen and other members to clear out protesters so the president can walk across, stand in front of a church and hold up a Bible for a campaign photo is disgusting. That's antithetical to what we should be doing to allow proper protest. But there's a clear line. Unlawful behavior, whatever the motivation, isn't okay. That is something we shouldn't tolerate and should uh, prosecute if it violates the law. My concern is I can't tell you, I have no personal um, assurance that I have an understanding of what's being motivated by Antifa, what's being motivated by either the white supremacists, the riot, the, the boogaloos or anything else. I don't have a confidence that what is being portrayed as the fact between the balance of all these various forces is in fact accurate. And that's concerning. Americans should have accurate information about what is driving the, particularly the violent protests. But, but there's a sense of proportionality, right? There must be an executive. I, 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 it's, it's naive to start a question by saying there must be. Wouldn't there be a team of people in the FBI who would have a sense of proportionality? In other words, to have a professional opinion that either the white supremacists or left-wing uh, violent protesters, however you want to define them, is a bigger threat than the other. Well, I, I think clearly there are people who are investigating that and looking at and have the data. You know, we know what motivated all these various violent attacks, all these various crimes to the extent we're able to identify. We, and I say we, and then that's an old habit. The FBI looking at that is able to identify and say, okay, this is what we know about the perpetrator or the subject and what motivated them. That's a very different thing from when that data then goes up into outside the kind of law enforcement role of what the FBI does and enters the political realm. And an area of concern, for example, is some of the information coming out of the intelligence office of the Department of Homeland Security, where whistleblowers now are saying that he was encouraged to, you know, any number of things. Some of it was on the state side, you know, play down the threat from Russia and encourage that of China and others. But that same office was involved in prior activity where they were emphasizing Antifa and certain elements of protesters and minimizing that of others. And that sort of political influence, I mean, it's one thing if you're ignoring intelligence. It's one thing if you have a PDB that you don't read. It's a much worse thing if you're sitting there saying, ignore intelligence or change intelligence. That's a really, really dangerous path to, to start going down. One is PDB. You're talking about the president's daily brief. One, one is right. incompetent. The other is venal. It might be a way to summarize what yes, you said. I think that's, I think that's uh, right. We're nearing the end of our time. I want to take us in a slightly more fun direction. A writer brings up the way that you, an anecdote you talk about near the beginning of your book. Can you talk about your case that you worked on as an FBI agent that inspired the television show, The Americans? It's an incredible story that few people seem to know about. Uh, sure. And it, it was a great case. So in this case, there were a number of people, uh, 10 uh, folks, when we finally arrested all of them, are Russian intelligence officers or spies under deep, deep cover. I mean, they weren't affiliated. They weren't even in most cases Russians. They had assumed Canadian identities or others based on, you know, a Canadian infant who had died and who some Russian then Soviet officer had pulled that sort of biographical data. And that was matched up with them as they were training uh, deep inside the Soviet Union. And then their job was to ultimately infiltrate into the United States become naturalized citizens or lawful permanent residents and just blend into society. And so we were able early on to kind of get a window into these, this network of folks. And we slowly methodically watch them year after year after year. And, you know, anytime somebody gets hard on down on the FBI or I get, you know, critical about the FBI and it wasn't just the FBI, I mean, this was the entire U S intelligence community. This was a spectacular case. I mean, over roughly 10 years, give or take, where agents come and go, analysts come and go, case officers come and go, but watching this whole series of people burrowed into American society, watching how they were talking back to Moscow, watching the sorts of information they were gathering, and just understanding the, all the nuanced details of what Russia was doing. I mean, it was amazing casework. And it was, you know, being an FBI agent, I, you know, anybody thinking about it, listening, join. It's the best job you'll ever have. You know, I love that there is no better job than being a case agent in the FBI. And I think you mentioned that, you know, reading uh, Andy McCabe's book. And certainly I hope that came through in mind that it's just uh, 
the, the work is astoundingly great. I mean, it, it, it's every day is a, a challenge and a puzzle and a mystery to, to unfold. And, it, you know, you told this fun and interesting story to make a point, though, which is that the Russians are, 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 are persistent and doing bad things and continue to do them. And they, you were you were setting this you were setting the stage. I have to ask you what I wanted to know. I watched the Americans, the television show, until I couldn't take the violence anymore. I found it very, very disturbing. Did these agents, were they trained as physical agents and did they conduct violent activities? No. So there's there's some Hollywood license going on there. That's I mean, what these I were, you know, It wasn't a like, hey, each week you get your mission. I mean, their job was to be as dull and boring as possible. They wanted to look like the boring neighbor that you had no idea that they were doing anything other than the other seven people down the street. Uh, you know, in whatever form or fashion. So there was not this sort of, you know, your your mission this week is to do X and you're, you know, going to assassinate somebody or, you know, fight off something. It was not that at all. By intent, their design was to be hidden and to stay hidden and just to kind of gather information and pass that back to, to Moscow. Again, as you indicate, a very long game. Somebody who might be a student at in grad school at Harvard who is going to get promoted up through the State Department one day, be an ambassador, you know, that sort of targeting over the long haul. That's a long game that the Russians do well, the Chinese do it better than anybody. But that's the, that is a perfect example of kind of the long game that counterintelligence represents. When you say that the Russians do it well and that the Chinese do it better than anybody, would it be safe to assume that, do you assume that both countries have sleeper agents in the United States right now of, of that ilk? Um, so I don't know, but I think that's a very fair assessment. I would assume so. Pete, um, what are you, uh, other than other than having spent a lot of time writing a book and now out, out promoting it, what what do you plan to do uh, in the in the next phase of of your career? What are your plans? So I'm teaching at Georgetown this fall at the School of Foreign Service. It's something I've always wanted to do. And I'm, you know, just kicked off a teaching and I'm really enjoying that. It's challenging and it's giving back in a way and, you know, sharing that experience in a way that I've always looked forward to doing. I'm not done with public service, whether that's inside the government or outside the government, I've always been drawn to, you know, that sort of service. And so, you know, for better or worse, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and hopefully we're going to be doing that. And well, we're going to be doing it regardless of what happens in November. The question is what that looks like and, you know, how best to, you know, get engaged in that process is something I really look forward to, you know, finding that right meaningful work and, and diving in. Well, having spent a career inside a, a large and famous bureaucracy, what, what, it, what it sounds to me like is that you, you, you might be interested in running for public office. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I haven't considered that. I, I, I haven't considered that at all. I mean, I will never say never to anything, but that is nothing on, uh, you know, that under consideration or that I've thought about. You also got an exposure during this experience that you probably never would have had to to the media, to the United States media in, in particular. So and we're not talking about RT and, and whatever the, the, the Russian government does with, with media operations, but our media. Um, you're, you're generally a defender in the, in the free press, et cetera, but talk about your experience for example, when the media wrote about your personal life? Uh, so it's tough. I mean, we are in the age of uh, clickbait. You know, there is a constant need, whether it's the cable news environment, whether it's the online news environment, there's a competition for views because that is what's generating revenue, whether it's revenue for the, the vehicle online or whether it's the, the media venue. And, you know, there is, a, and, and we see an accumulation, you know, the shutting down of local media, the, the shuttering of local newspapers and the kind of ever growing national media that is driven by the desire to get views. That has a perverting impact on the presentation of the news and certainly to be kind of thrust where your every, you know, my every move is kind of thrown out there um, was disconcerting. I mean, it angers you and it, it upsets you and it certainly is nothing I would wish on anybody. But you know, I don't know that we ever escape that. I am concerned that, you know, to the extent there were lessons in 2016 about the the volume of attention that was paid to the emails, to former Secretary of State Clinton's emails and the use of the server, in conjunction to the balance of the coverage that was being given to everything else, there is a lot of fault to go around. I mean, there was soul searching in the FBI. There was soul searching in the U.S. intelligence community about the response to Russia. I think there was certainly soul searching within the Obama administration about what they did or didn't do in the run-up. 
there's some in the media, but I don't think they, more than anybody else, have really come to terms with fixing some of the, the gaps and problems that were exposed. And my worry is, if right now you reset all the players and the facts that occurred in 2016, I'm not so certain that it wouldn't play out in exactly the same way. And so that points to, you know, a lot of reform and, and soul searching that still needs to take place. And everybody, it's easy to criticize somebody else, right? I mean, the media can look at the FBI and criticize what they did. The FBI can look at the media and say, oh, you screwed this up and vice versa. But the, the change has to come from within. So um, that is something I think we still need to, to tackle as a nation. And then that's separate and distinct from the issue about social media and content moderation and who should be doing that and the appropriate role and limitations, if any. Well, given the amount of scrutiny that you've come under and the level of detail that you gave to your own story, including your own shortcomings, I guess no one will accuse you of not uh, uh, walking the walk uh, in terms of self-investigation or, or self-exploration. So as a member of the media, your, 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 your thoughts are, are, well, are well made, in, 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 in my opinion. And so, Peter Strzok, I just want to thank you very much for, um, for, for being here today. Peter Strzok, the author of Compromised, we encourage everyone listening to pick up a copy of the book at your local independent bookstore. Uh, although, uh, if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, uh, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. And although I do not have the gavel that I wish we had if we were in person, this concludes our program. I'm Adam Lashinsky. Thank you and see you next time. Pete, thank you again. Great. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.